Today on the 20th episode of the California Slap Law Podcast, we're going to discuss important evidence codes and my vindication by the California Court of Appeal. Welcome to the California Slap Law Podcast. California's slap law was a great idea, but it can be a minefield for the uninformed. To guide you through that minefield, here's your host, from the law firm of Morris & Stone, Aaron Morris. Welcome to the 20th episode of the California Slap Law Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. My name is Aaron Morris. I am the senior and getting more senior everyday partner with the Southern California law firm of Morris & Stone. If you're new to the podcast, where have you been? This is the place where we discuss all things slap and, like today, other related topics that are of interest to litigators. If we can be of assistance with anything having to do with free speech, defamation, or anti-slap motions, please feel free to call at 714-954-0700 or email me at morris at toplawfirm. Not the bottom law firm, the top law firm. Last episode, I told the story of an attorney who is being sued for malpractice because he filed a slap and his client is now on the hook for all the attorney fees. He had been told by another attorney to be sure to have me review the complaint before he filed it to make sure it could survive an anti-slap motion, but he failed to do so. So I pointed out that at least in that case, it has been found to be malpractice not to have me review your complaints. Well, I got a couple of emails from listeners saying that, of course, it's malpractice not to have me review the complaint. I just really wanted to thank you for getting into the spirit of my self-aggrandizement. When it comes to humility, I'm the greatest! And speaking of feeding my ego, today I want to discuss a published opinion that came out this week concerning one of my cases. It was a very exciting decision, at least to me, because it totally vindicates the way I handled a particular internet defamation case. And although it's not directly related to slap law, it discusses application of some evidence codes of which every litigator should be aware. And along the way, we'll weave in a couple of anti-slap cases. Even if you never take a case to trial, you must be aware of these code sections because they impact your discovery early in the litigation process. Now, the decision came out of a case I took to trial in Santa Cruz County. It's a published decision, so I suppose I could use the names of the parties, but I feel a little funny drawing attention to the case because it is a defamation case, and all of the defamatory comments against my client are set forth in the decision. But if I pique your interest enough that you want to read the actual decision, go to californiaslaplaw.com forward slash episode 20, and I'll have a link to the published opinion there if you're curious. Just know that if you go there, the Yelp reviews in question are false. After all, that was the entire point of the case. So I'm going to refer to my client as Esquire because she was and is an attorney, and I'll call the defendant Painter. If you knew his real name, you'd understand why. It's That's sort of the nature of his name. So let us begin with the fascinating case of Esquire versus Painter, not their real names. Esquire is a practicing attorney who runs a side business out of a rented warehouse. She leases a small part of a very large warehouse. Painter comes along and he buys the warehouse, so he's now Esquire's landlord. Painter moves his business into the warehouse and he wants the entire warehouse, so he offers to buy out Esquire's lease. Well, Esquire really likes her space in the warehouse and and has an option for another five years, so she rejects the offer. And that's where the fun begins. According to Esquire, Painter then begins harassing her in an effort to make the tenancy so annoying that she will agree to the buyout and move out. He's always threatening to tow her customers' cars. He's always claiming that they are parking in the spots that belong to him. He serves repeated three-day and 15-day notices claiming that Esquire is in violation of the lease. 
He makes surprise inspections and photographs the interior of Esquire's space, thereby making a record of what she considers to be super-secret processes. But the worst, according to Esquire, was when he started jackhammering in his space during business hours, making so much noise that Esquire could not conduct business. So on June 1st, that's an important date, on June 1st, Esquire goes to court and gets a TRO against Painter, stopping him from jackhammering while at the same time defining which parking spaces Esquire's customers could use. That same day, June 1st, someone publishes a really bad Yelp review about Esquire's business. The next day, there was another really bad Yelp review posted. And the day after that, the third really bad Yelp review appears. All three of the reviews are posted under different names. All three are what I call one-ups, where the review is the only review the person ever posted on Yelp. The person created a Yelp account just to post one negative review. Now, Esquire had never had a bad Yelp review, and the three bad reviews described situations that were clearly manufactured. It was clear that the reviews were not from real customers because they described work that Esquire had supposedly done poorly, but in fact, it was work that Esquire does not even do. So, Esquire smelled a rat. Esquire was sure that it was Painter who was posting the bad reviews, both out of anger because Esquire had obtained the TRO and as a part of the campaign to get her out of the warehouse. Esquire got fed up with all the interference by Painter and sued him for breach of lease and breach of the covenant of quiet enjoyment. Esquire handled the case herself. Remember, she's an attorney, hence the Esquire. When the issue of the Yelp reviews came up, she then hired a firm to subpoena the information necessary to learn who had posted the false Yelp reviews. Now, if you've never been through the process, here is how you learn the identity of a Yelper. First, you subpoena from Yelp uh, the IP address and email address of the person who posted the false review. Yelp will often fight the subpoena, so you may have to bring a motion to compel. Sometimes I can prevail on Yelp's in-house counsel to be reasonable and avoid having to do a motion to compel by giving them an easy way to confirm that the reviews are in fact false. In this case, for example, I would have said to counsel, well, if you look at their IP addresses, take a little sneak peek and you'll see that all three of these reviews are from the same person, meaning that at least two of those reviews are false. I will remind Yelp's counsel that Yelp claims to work really hard to weed out false reviews, so if I'm pointing out that three reviews came from one person, they should really fall all over themselves to help me weed out that evil Yelper. So once Yelp provides the IP addresses, then you can just do a search online for the internet service provider who uses that particular IP address. Okay. So then you subpoena the customer information from those internet service providers, also called ISPs. Those are companies such as Comcast, AT&T, Roadrunner, Time Warner, etc. They will usually fight you too, requiring yet another motion to compel. So here is what happened in Esquire versus Painter, not their real names. It turns out that the three false reviews did not come from the same IP address, but two of them did. Two were posted from the same Comcast account, and one was posted from an AT&T account. The firm served a subpoena on AT&T, and AT&T responded without objection. And surprise, surprise, surprise. Surprise, surprise, surprise. One of the false reviews was posted from Painter's business account with AT&T. It was posted from Painter's business. That left two reviews posted from the same Comcast account. Comcast fought the subpoena, but former counsel had sent what's called a preservation of evidence letter, so Comcast stated it would hold the information and provide it if ordered by the court. When you seek an IP address, most internet service providers only retain that information for about 180 days. By the time you obtain the IP address from Yelp, you can be running out of time if you don't really move this along. At this point, Esquire decides she wants the pros from Dover, so she brings in Morrison Stone as co-counsel. 
Now, we already have the great information from AT&T catching Painter dead to rights, so we just need to clear up the Comcast information. The Comcast information presented a bit of a twist. As you probably know, Internet service providers mostly use dynamic IP addresses. A customer's IP address can change from time to time. In most instances, they are sticky, and a customer will have the same IP address for months or even years. The IP address is held by the modem slash router, so even if the computer is rebooted, the IP address will remain the same. The assignment of an IP address is referred to as a lease, and the length of the lease varies from ISP to ISP, but in the case of Comcast, the lease is for three days. Well, you might say to yourself, three days doesn't sound very long. Is it going to change every three days? Well, as I said, if the router stays powered up, that lease will automatically renew every three days with the same IP address. As our expert testified, a Comcast customer will only receive a new IP address if they power off the router for more than three days or their modem. But when you ask the ISP to provide the identity of the customer who is using the IP address at the time the Yelp review was posted, you have to ask for that specific information. You ask for the IP address at the date and time the false review was posted because that IP address could theoretically be assigned to someone else the same day. So Morrison Stone is now on the job and we bring a motion to compel against Comcast and our motion to compel is granted. Comcast turns over the information, but there's a complication. By the time prior counsel had sent the preservation of evidence letter, it was already 11 days past the time that Comcast maintains its records. In other words, Comcast keeps the IP address information for 180 days, but the request was received on day 191, let's say. So Comcast tells us it can't tell us which customer was using the IP address when the false Yelp reviews were posted from that IP address on June 1st and 2nd, but it can tell us who was using that IP address 11 days later. And since, as I just explained, Comcast uses sticky IP addresses, it is far more likely than not that the person who is using the IP address 11 days after the false Yelp review was posted is the same person who is using it when it was posted. So Comcast informs us that 11 days after the false Yelp reviews were posted, the IP address was assigned to Painter's home account. Now, it is possible that someone other than Painter posted those reviews on June 1st and 2nd, and 11 days later, the IP address just happened to get assigned to Painter. Our expert testified that the odds of that happening are at best 1 in 4 billion based on the number of IP addresses used by Comcast. But the odds are actually much longer than 1 in 4 billion because it would require a scenario where the person who posted the false reviews then happened to lose his lease on that IP address at the same time Painter lost his lease on his IP address and therefore ended up with the other IP address. It was probably more like 1 in 16 billion. This was the strongest evidence I've ever had on an internet defamation case. It is almost always the case that when we determine that the false review came from someone's home account, they will claim that someone else must have posted the review using their computer or through their wireless router. I've had a defendant claim that on the date in question, someone showed at their house and asked if they could crash on the couch. They never caught the name of the stranger, but they had to have been the person who posted the negative review. But these sort of arguments have never worked because the circumstantial facts all point to the defendant. Sure, that was the day you just happened to let somebody sleep on your couch, but the day the false review was posted just happens to be the same day that the defendant was fired by the business. Plus, the comments posted contained facts that only a former employee would know. In fact, I've won cases where we have zero IP address information. I had a case where someone posted the same negative review about my client on about 20 different sites under 20 different names. Because of the passage of time and the nature of the sites, we could not subpoena the IP information. 
but the defendant had sent an email to my client threatening to destroy his reputation, and in that email had used the same phraseology and even misspelled the same words. The judge found that to be sufficient to conclude that all of the postings were from the same defendant. So while it is true that a defendant can always claim that even though the posting came from his computer, he is not the one who posted it, it is also true that the trier of fact can make reasonable inferences. In Esquire versus Painter, the inferences were irrefutable. Within three days after my client had obtained a TRO against Painter, three negative reviews were posted, one from Painter's business and two from Painter's home. A blind person could connect those dots. But it was not to be so. When the case came to me, Esquire was suing for breach of contract and breach of the covenant of quiet enjoyment, as well as defamation based on the AT&T account at that point. The claims were intertwined because the false reviews were another attempt by Painter to get Esquire out of the warehouse and were therefore part of the breach of quiet enjoyment and breach of contract claims. Painter cross-complained for breach of contract by Esquire in an effort to prevent Esquire from exercising a five-year renewal option. The lease provides that if if at any time Esquire violates the lease, she cannot renew. The cross-complaint was a big part of the case because my client did not want to lose her five-year option. She really liked this space. But Painter and his counsel took one look at my trial brief and dismissed the cross-complaint, leaving only Esquire's complaint. So before trial even started, we had a victory on the cross-complaint. As to our complaint against Painter, counsel for Painter brought an in limine motion seeking to exclude the Yelp reviews. And this is really important to understanding the story. The in limine motion sought to exclude the Yelp reviews based solely on opposing counsel's erroneous claim that in order to authenticate the Yelp reviews, we needed a representative from Yelp. Since we had not listed anyone from Yelp on our witness list, opposing counsel claimed that the Yelp reviews could not be authenticated. She did not bring any motion seeking to exclude our defamation claim, but if the court ruled that we could not introduce the Yelp reviews, well, that would defeat our defamation claim, because how can we put on evidence of the defamatory Yelp reviews if we can't put on the Yelp reviews? So losing the Yelp reviews would also gut our breach of lease claims. The Yelp reviews were the smoking gun that showed just how far Painter was willing to go to interfere with Esquire's quiet enjoyment of the lease. So let me give you the law and then we'll discuss the trial court's crazy ruling. The relevant evidence codes to this discussion are important for any litigator to know. So how do you authenticate a Yelp review or anything else you see on the internet? Let's take it out of the defamation context just to make it clear. Let's say your client found a job listing on Monster.com and for some reason the the job description posted on Monster.com is relevant to your case. Do you really have to subpoena someone from Monster.com to come to court and authenticate what your client saw posted on the site? Fortunately, you don't because that would be a real pain. Here's what Evidence Code Section 1552 has to say about computer records. Quote, A printed representation of computer information or a computer program is presumed to be an accurate representation of the computer information or computer program that it purports to represent. This presumption is a presumption affecting the burden of producing evidence. It's that simple. The Court of Appeal quoted me as saying the documents were self-authenticating. The court didn't say I was wrong, but it did put self-authenticating in quotes, so I'm not sure they agreed with that characterization, but it is very easy to authenticate computer records. There is a presumption to the admissibility of the computer records. Now, Evidence Code Section 1552 goes on to say that if the opposition puts on evidence that the printed representation is inaccurate or unreliable, well, then the party seeking to introduce the evidence has the burden to show that the records are accurate. But that's never come up in any of my cases. What evidence could the defendant produce that these aren't really the Yelp reviews that my client found when she went on Yelp? And by the way, Evidence Code Section 1553 does the same thing for photos. Evidence Code 1553 provides... 
A printed representation of images stored on a video or digital medium is presumed to be an accurate representation of the images it purports to represent. This presumption is a presumption affecting the burden of producing evidence. I had a case once where um, we were putting on evidence of photos that the opposition had provided to us. In other words, it was a construction case and the, um, the defendant would send pictures showing all the work he was doing on this particular job. And we were suing, one of our claims was fraud, saying that the pictures he sent us had been doctored. He would do things like, instead of painting four walls, he'd paint two walls and then take a picture just showing the two walls, giving the impression that uh, he'd painted all four walls. So I went to introduce this evidence, and the judge sustained an objection, uh, claiming that since we hadn't taken the pictures and we weren't there the time the pictures were taken, we couldn't attest to the authenticity of the uh, pictures, what they represented. Well, that's the whole point, Judge. We're showing you pictures that he sent to us. We've got to be able to introduce those pictures. I finally got him turned around, but some judges just don't understand these two evidence codes. But back to Esquire versus Painter, the trial judge in our case was Judge Ariadne, I don't know how she pronounces that, A-R-I-A-D-N-E, Ariadne Simons in the Santa Cruz Superior Court. Uh, We're not exactly on a first name basis, so I'm not sure how she pronounces her first name, but when we were assigned to her court for the trial, she commented that we had drawn the short straw given the nature of the case because she knows nothing about computers. Well, that turned out to be painfully true. When I showed her evidence code 1552, she asked, what do Yelp reviews have to do with computer information? Now, sections 1552 and 1553 were added to the evidence code as part of the 1998 legislation that repealed the best evidence rule. Yes, that's right. The best evidence rule has been repealed in California. It was formerly evidence code 1500. And California instead adopted the secondary evidence rule. Under the secondary evidence rule, the content of a writing may now be proved either by an otherwise admissible original, that's section 1520, or by otherwise admissible secondary evidence, that's section 1521. Sections 1552 and 1553 permit the writings that they describe to be introduced as secondary evidence. Thus, the presumptions in sections 1552 and 1553 Eliminate the basis for any objection that a printed version of the described writing is not the quote-unquote original writing. Sections 1552 and 1553 provide a presumption for both the existence and content of computer information and digital images. There should have been no question about the admissibility of the Yelp reviews. But based on the judge's comments, I prepared an offer of proof with extensive citation to cases. One of the cases I cited was Ampex Corp. versus Cargill, which involved a completely analogous situation. In that case, an employee by the name of Cargill was laid off by Ampex along with 20 other employees. Cargill, using the pseudonym Exampex, went on a Yahoo business forum and posted some really nasty things about Ampex. Uh, it was actually a subsidiary of Ampex, but that's not important to the story. So Ampex filed an action against Exampex, the anonymous name. Exampex, a.k.a. Cargill, used a technique I sometimes employ and didn't, didn't wait for Ampex to learn his identity. He responded to the complaint, identifying himself as the one who had posted the comments, and filed an anti-slap motion. In his anti-slap motion, Cargill argued that Ampex was a, a matter of public interest. To prove that Ampex was a matter of public interest, Cargill attached printouts of the Yahoo forum to demonstrate that there were 112,000 postings regarding Ampex and its subsidiary. Now, Ampex got scared and dismissed its complaint, but that still left the issue of the attorney fees incurred by Cargill, which in turn made it necessary to determine if Cargill would have prevailed on the anti-slap motion if Cargill had not turned tail and run. Excuse me, if Ampex had not turned tail and run. In fighting the attorney fees directly and the anti-slap motion indirectly, 
Ampex argued that all of the printouts of the Yahoo website were inadmissible hearsay. The trial court agreed and denied Cargill's motion for attorney fees, holding that it never would have granted the anti-slap motion if all Cargill could offer was inadmissible hearsay printouts. Well, Cargo appealed and the Court of Appeals said, Judge, are you a special kind of stupid? Of course the printouts of the Yahoo form are admissible. Okay, the Court of Appeal didn't really call the judge stupid, but don't you wish they would on occasion? The Court of Appeal didn't call the judge names, but it did make its frustration apparent. How could the printouts be hearsay when they were in no way being offered for the truth of the matter asserted, the Court of Appeal question? They are offered only to prove that they existed in the public eye. And the Court of Appeal went on to say there is no foundation issue with these printouts because they are self-authenticating under Evidence Code 1552. See, the Ampex Court agreed with me that they are self-authenticating. The Court of Appeal said the trial court's evidentiary rulings were patently wrong. The Court of Appeal concluded that the printouts from the Yahoo message board absolutely did prove that Ampex was a matter of public interest. That the trial court absolutely would have granted the anti-slap motion if it knew a damn thing about evidence. And on that basis, reversed and remanded, ordering the trial court to award the attorney fees. Now, it was kind of an entertaining note. The Court of Appeal in Ampex versus Cargill determined that Cargill had not properly preserved the issue of the admissibility of the printouts for appeal. So how did it get around that? It just went ahead and went to the Yahoo site itself and took judicial notice of the 112,000 postings about Ampex. Okay, so now we all know that the Yelp reviews themselves come in under Evidence Code 1552. A printout of anything you see on the internet is admissible if you are offering it just to prove its existence. But even if Judge Simons had understood that the false Yelp reviews were admissible under Section 1552, she no doubt still would have kept them out because she did not understand the evidentiary rules regarding indirect evidence or the business records subpoena process. So now let's take a look at how you get the records into evidence and whether the indirect evidence was sufficient to connect those false Yelp reviews to Painter. Yelp responded to our subpoena and provided the IP addresses from which the Yelp reviews were posted. We talked about that. How do we get that information along with the information from AT&T and Comcast showing that those IP addresses were assigned to Painter? Counsel for Painter argued that I had to have a representative from Yelp, AT&T, and Comcast to authenticate the records. Is that true? Again, thankfully, no. Commencing at Section 1560, the Evidence Code sets out a procedure for subpoenaing business records. Now, I'm sure you know about this process, but a lot of attorneys make it a lot more difficult than it needs to be. Section 1560 controls how you can subpoena business records. I see a lot of attorneys who follow the process whereby the records are placed in a sealed envelope and then delivered to the court, and then the envelope is opened at the time of trial with all the attorneys present. Well, that's crazy talk. How do you prepare for trial if you don't get the documents until trial? When you go to section 1560, be sure to skip down to subsection E, which basically provides that you don't have to follow any of the prior subsections. Instead, use subsection E, which provides for the documents to be delivered right to you, just like a pizza. 30 days or less or the documents are free. So ATAT, Yelp, and Comcast provided the records with a declaration from the custodian of records. What is required in that declaration is set forth in Evidence Code Section 1561. If you subpoena from a large company that routinely responds to subpoenas, the declaration will probably contain the necessary language, but don't assume that to be the case. In this case, when I looked at the Comcast declaration, when they finally responded after the motion to compel, I saw that the declaration was insufficient and I had to get a better declaration that satisfied Section 1561. It'd be a shame to make it this far and have your documents precluded on some deficiency in the declaration. And then the final puzzle piece comes from Evidence Code Section 1562. 
Section 1562 provides that so long as you've complied with the prior sections I just mentioned, then the records are admissible and the matters therein are presumed to be true. And here's the crucial part. The records are every bit as admissible as if the custodian of records had been present. So take that opposing counsel. I did not need someone from Yelp. I did not need someone from AT&T or Comcast. When opposing counsel brings a motion like that, I wonder if they really don't know better or they're just hoping the court won't know any better. Here, it certainly worked. So where are we with Esquire versus Painter? Not their real names. Well, the Yelp reviews are admissible because Esquire can attest that she saw them on the Yelp site. Then the IP information from Yelp and the subscriber information from AT&T and Comcast are admissible because it came with a declaration from, from the custodian of records. But how do we connect the dots? We have evidence that the false Yelp reviews were posted from Painter's internet accounts, but does that prove he posted them? Painter is going to claim, as they all do, that while the review was posted from his account, he's not the one who posted it. Here are the actual theories Painter advanced. He claimed that as to the review that was posted from his office, well, that could have been one of his employees. In fact, the company email address used to create the Yelp account and then to post the Yelp review was the company email address of one of his former employees. And yes, we did uh, take her deposition, and yes, she did deny that she ever posted this um, comment. Now, as to his home, he testified at his deposition that he does not use a password on his wireless router at home, so anyone, even Esquire, could have parked in front of his house and posted the negative reviews in order to create the impression that he had posted the reviews. He swore that he never posted the reviews. That was a pretty amazing theory when you think about it. Uh, according to Painter and his counsel, Esquire was was so methodical and evil that she anticipated that someday she'd be suing Painter. So she went and parked in front of his house, hacked into his router, posted negative reviews about her business, and was willing to do that. So someday when it went to trial, she could point to that and say, well, see, Painter posted uh, negative reviews about me. I mean, it's a crazy theory, but that's the, kind of, that's the kind of argument you can expect when you get the IP information. So since Painter is swearing that he never posted the reviews, are we out of luck? Can we ever prove that he posted the reviews? What about that 11-day gap in the records? Is that insurmountable? This takes us to the law on indirect evidence and inferences. Evidence Code 600 defines inference as a deduction of fact that may logically and reasonably be drawn from another fact or group of facts found or otherwise established in the action. In support of the inference that Painter was the one who posted the false Yelp reviews, we cited to a case called Fashion 21 versus Coalition for Humane Immigrant Rights of Los Angeles. In Fashion 21, a clothing retailer brought a claim for libel against a group of workers who allegedly distributed defamatory flyers during a demonstration. One of the defendants was a guy named Naro. Fashion 21 had no direct evidence that Naro had given out the flyer to anyone. But Fashion 21 did have a video of Naro showing him helping to unload placards and banners from a truck. So we knew he was involved with the uh, protesters. And the video later showed him holding a stack of the defamatory flyers. And the video showed people around Naro holding the flyers and reading the flyers. Naro denied that he ever gave anyone a flyer. So Naro brought an anti-slap motion claiming that Fashion 21 could not prevail because there was insufficient evidence Naro had distributed the defamatory flyer. In other words, Naro argued that even if the flyers were defamatory, you can't prove I passed them out. Nanny nanny poo poo, he said. 
Well, Marilyn Hoffman, the, the trial judge in the Fashion 21 case, understood the law on indirect evidence, unlike Judge Simons. So she denied the anti-slap motion, holding that Fashion 21 met the second prong of the anti-slap analysis. The trial court concluded that the video was sufficient to support the inference that Naro had passed out the flyers. Naro appealed, and that afforded the Court of Appeal the opportunity to explain how indirect evidence works. The Court of Appeal held that even slight evidence in support of a fact to be inferred is sufficient. The standard is whether the evidence could support the inference. The standard is not whether the evidence supports the inference as a matter of law. So in Fashion 21, could the jury reasonably conclude under the facts given that Naro did distribute the flyers? Well, the answer is a clear yes. He was one of the demonstrators. He was seen holding the flyers, and people around him had been given the flyers. From those circumstances, a jury could conclude that he had passed out the flyers. Now, as it turned out, the Court of Appeal reversed and ordered the trial court to grant the anti-slap motion based on part because it didn't find the flyers to be defamatory. But the indirect evidence was found to be sufficient. So back to our case, could the jury conclude that Painter posted the false Yelp reviews? The answer, again, is a clear yes. Given the timing of the posts and the fact that they were posted from Painter's internet accounts, both at home and at work, the jury could have concluded that Painter posted the false reviews. But the jury was never given that chance. Here's what happened. Remember, opposing counsel brought an in limine motion seeking to exclude the Yelp reviews, claiming that we had to have someone present from Yelp to authenticate the reviews. That was all the motion in limine was about. Evidence Code Section 1552 should have put that issue to rest. But instead, Judge Simon set a 402 hearing and ordered that I bring my expert witness. The exchange that follows is taken directly from the reporter's transcript and is set forth in the opinion of the Court of Appeal. My internet protocol expert was a guy named Ron Herardian who did a fantastic job. The day before the 402 hearing, Judge Simons had emailed me and asked that I provide a copy of Mr. Herardian's transcript, his depot transcript. We showed up on Monday, and it was me, opposing counsel, the judge, and the court reporter, thank God, and Mr. Herardian, and my client. The judge began by stating that she had read the transcript and really did not feel there was any point in Mr. Herardian testifying. I asked that he be permitted to testify, and she said that if he did testify, he could not say anything that was in the deposition transcript. So apparently I was supposed to have complete and absolute recall of what he testified to. I had to explain to the court how depositions work and that the testimony in the transcript was what opposing counsel had elicited and that I would be asking Mr. Herardian questions to specifically address the court's concerns about the indirect evidence, which was not something that would have been covered by the deposition. So yes, I would be eliciting information from Mr. Herardian that may or may not be in his deposition testimony. Judge Simons reluctantly agreed to let me question my expert. So here's the exchange. This is me. Mr. Herardian, during the month of June 2011, who was that IP address account assigned to according to this record from AT&T? Mr. Herardian testifies, Joe Painter. I say, well, now if you look at the top of the record, and at that point Judge Simons cuts in, how can you tell that? Mr. Herardian says, well, his name's right here under customer name, Judge Simons. Right, and it says billing start date April 2001, Mr. Herardian. That would be most likely the time at which the service was established. Judge Simons. How do you know that this is the record for June 3rd, 2011? Because someone told you it was, right? Mr. Herardian. It's my understanding this document was provided in response to a subpoena. Judge Simons. Right. So someone told you that. That's the only reason you know that. Is that fair? Mr. Herardian. Well, it's fair to assume that. It's because that was the information asked for in the subpoena. Yes. Judge Simons. Okay. Someone told you that. So he doesn't know that. Walk me through how you can tell that from this, Mr. Morris. This is me. 
because they're responding to our subpoena and they're showing us who was assigned that IP address on that date. That's what we asked them for. And if you look at the top of the page, it shows you that that was Joe Painter was assigned that IP address from February 6, 2011 to at least August 26, 2011. Judge Simons, yes. And in this gentleman's deposition, he said he just assumed that the billing address and the service address were the same, as I recall. Yes, he is just assuming that they're the same. All right. In this matter, I'm going to find an absence of foundation. I'm not going to allow the Comcast records in. The custodian of records certifies that beginning July 27, 2011, that we have no information for us about anything preceding that time. Okay, so she concluded that no reasonable inference could be drawn that Joe Painter had that IP address 11 days earlier. She's wrong, but that explains why she would exclude the Comcast records. But what about the AT&T records? There's no 11-day gap in the AT&T records. How is she going to exclude those? Well, here's what she said. Judge Simons. Now, respect to the AT&T, I think there's the same foundational flaw. Your expert in his testimony said, I assume that the billing address is the same as the service address. I don't think one can assume such an important foundational fact. In other words, since my internet protocol expert did not have personal knowledge as to Mr. Painter's address, he could not lay the foundation for what was said in the AT&T records. Now, keep in mind, Painter conceded at his deposition that the postings came from his home and work locations. He just denied that he was the one who did the postings. So why would my IP expert need to have personal knowledge of Painter's addresses? Judge Simon said that the foundation for the records could have been laid, but that I needed someone there from AT&T and Comcast, to which I responded, Your Honor, I feel like we're still confusing foundation and the probability of whether Mr. Painter did it. So just for the record, is the court saying that the custodian of records declarations are not sufficient to show that this was the IP address in July? To which the court responded, I don't know that I can articulate it any better, sir. I've done the best I can. The record will just reflect my observations in this matter. Well, that ruling gutted the case. Without the false Yelp reviews, the remaining breach of contract claims just came across as petty squabblings between a tenant and her landlord. In the special verdict, the jury found that Painter had breached the lease but awarded no damages. Since Painter prevailed on the breach of lease claims, he was awarded attorney fees. Sensing that things were not going well prior to the verdict, I had managed to lay a perfect trap for the judge, creating a record that would basically guarantee a reversal. Defense counsel, I hate to keep going back to this, but just to make it clear, defense counsel had sought only a motion in limine to exclude the Yelp reviews. Instead, we ended up with the court ruling that we could not introduce the Yelp, Comcast, and AT&T records, nor could we put on any evidence of defamation. So after the ruling, I said to the court, for purposes of the record, Your Honor, what is that you just did? Uh, it certainly was not a ruling on the motion, uh, the eliminate motion. Was it perhaps a directed verdict? It sure looked like a directed verdict. Shall we call it a directed verdict? Well, the judge responded that she did not know what to call what she had just done and that she would need to do some research at the lunch break and determine what to call what she had just done. I responded that you might want to begin your research in the directed verdict section. Thank you, directed verdict. Your Honor, directed verdict. Have a good lunch, directed verdict. Why was I pushing for a directed verdict? Because under section 630, CCP section 630, a trial court has no authority to grant a directed verdict motion sua sponte. Opposing counsel brought an in limine motion to exclude the Yelp reviews. She certainly had never moved for directed verdict on the entire defamation claim. So if I could get the court to call it a directed verdict, it would be error. So after the lunch break, the judge calls in the jury and while they are filing in, she calls for a sidebar. We all go up and the judge says, Mr. Morris, after researching the issue, I've decided that what I did uh, was uh, I entered a directed verdict on your client's defamation claim. I tried to keep the excitement from showing on my face. That basically guaranteed a reversal on appeal. 
I ultimately predicted that if we appealed the verdict, the Court of Appeal would not only reverse the court's ruling on the defamation evidence and the directed verdict on the defamation claim, but it would reverse on the breach of contract claims because they were so intertwined. So I was really looking forward to appealing this terrible verdict. But to save money, Esquire went back to representing herself on the post-trial motions and on the appeal. I was therefore left as a spectator on the post-trial motions and appeal. For whatever reason, Esquire decided not to pursue the directed verdict angle. I'd set up this perfect trap and it was wasted. And Painter came back with a bunch of crazy claims in his opening brief, including a claim that the judge's ruling in no way prevented us from putting on evidence of defamation. But Esquire didn't even file a reply. I was, I was going crazy. Of course I wanted to be vindicated, but I also thought it was crucial that Judge Simons be made to look at the errors she committed so she won't make the same errors in other cases. Now, in defense of Judge Simons, she was on the criminal panel, and I think that somehow tainted her view of civil cases. But if she was going to handle civil cases in the future, it was important that this judgment be reversed so she could understand where she went wrong. Her views on indirect evidence left unchecked would do a lot of injustice in other cases. And yet the appeal as presented did not have much chance of success. So as you probably know, you can sign up for automatic notifications on any appeal. But I don't trust those, so even though I was signed up for notifications, after the case was fully briefed, I would check every couple of days to see if the opinion had been issued. So one day I hit the button to check on the appeal, and I see that a notice of settlement had been filed. I was crestfallen. The Court of Appeal does not render an opinion if the case is settled. I would never be vindicated, and Judge Simons would never know just how wrong she'd been. It turned out that at the oral argument on the appeal, the justices had made it abundantly clear that despite all the shortcomings with the appeal, they were going to find in favor of Esquire. Esquire jumped on the momentum from the oral argument and settled with Painter. A case called Ebensteiner Company v. Chadmark Group holds that a valid settlement between the parties renders the appeal moot to the extent that it effectively extinguishes the judgment from which the appeal is taken, ending both the dispute and the possibility of further effective relief from the court. Since my former client had settled with Painter, then the appeal was moot and the Court of Appeal would never issue an opinion. Two weeks later, I'm at a deposition and all of a sudden my partner is practically jumping up and down on the other side of the glass wall. We take a break, she drags me into an adjoining conference room, and she points at a document she has open on her iPhone. The Court of Appeal for the 6th District had rendered a published opinion in the case. In footnote number one, the court states that it is well aware that the parties filed a notice of settlement and that it is aware, pursuant to the Ebensteiner case, that the settlement renders the appeal moot. But the Court of Appeal then cites to the Supreme Court case of Birch v. George, which held that the appellate court has inherent power to retain a matter, even though it has been settled and is technically moot, where the issues are important and of continuing interest. So despite the settlement, the Court of Appeal found that the issues presented to be so important that it retained the case in order to issue its opinion. And here's what the Court of Appeal stated. We find this appeal presents issues of public interest that promise to recur specifically in the emerging realm of internet-based communications, online aliases, and questions pertaining to the admissibility of such evidence at trial. We therefore retain jurisdiction in order to resolve the issues presented. The Court of Appeal reversed the judgment. Even better, the court did what I had predicted. The jury dealt only with the breach of lease claims and found in favor of Painter. 
but the Court of Appeal found that the defamation claims were so crucial to the breach of lease claims that the jury's verdict on those claims had to be reversed because the result could have been different if the defamation claims had not been improperly excluded. The entire case can now be tried again in front of a new judge as though it had never happened. In its opinion, the Court of Appeal takes Judge Simons to task on her reasoning over the Yelp reviews. The opinion refers to her reasoning as perplexing. The court held that it had no issue with her going beyond the scope of the motion in limine so long as I was given the opportunity to respond. But the court held since Judge Simons treated the in limine motion as a motion for non-suit, then the standards for a motion for non-suit apply. She was required to resolve all presumptions, inferences, and doubts in favor of Miss Esquire. Here, the Court of Appeal held Judge Simons had done precisely the opposite. She required that we prove the inferences were the only possible result as a matter of law. The Court of Appeal used the Comcast records as a specific example. As the court put it, in addressing the temporal gap between the Yelp reviews and the earliest IP address that Comcast could produce, the trial court negatively inferred that because the Comcast records did not extend to the dates of the postings, plaintiffs could not prove by a preponderance of the evidence that the reviews were in fact posted from defendant's Comcast account. This conclusion ignored the positive inference that should have been drawn for plaintiffs from the fact that as of late July 2011, the Comcast records for the identical IP address provided by Yelp was assigned to defendant's account. Properly interpreting the evidence favorably to plaintiffs out of the universe of IP addresses that could have been assigned to defendant by Comcast as of July 27, 2011, the one assigned to his account had been used to post two of the Yelp reviews less than two months earlier. Critical to our analysis is the general admonition that, as long as the evidence would support a finding of authenticity, the writing is admissible. The fact conflicting inferences can be drawn regarding authenticity goes to the document's weight as evidence, not its admissibility. And as to all admissibility issues, those were no-brainers. The Court of Appeal held that the Yelp reviews were admissible under Evidence Code Section 1552, and the Comcast and AT&T records were admissible as business records. In fact, the admissibility of the Comcast and AT&T records was relegated to a footnote because the Court of Appeal found it so obvious. In discussing Section 1552, the Court relied heavily on a Supreme Court case uh, called People v. Goldsmith. It was a 2014 case. Now, a quick discussion of that case is in order because it shows just how far 1552 goes. Goldsmith was a red light camera case. Goldsmith received a ticket for running a red light in the city of Inglewood. She fought the ticket, and the only witness was an investigator from the Inglewood Police Department. The red light camera was operated by a private company. The investigator simply testified that the red light camera takes three photos of any car running a red light along with a 20, excuse me, along with a 12-second video. The prosecutor then introduced the three photos and the video, and the investigator confirmed that they had been downloaded from the red light camera system. But Goldstein said, hold on, Maude. She argued that the photos and video were inadmissible as hearsay and for lack of foundation. The trial court overruled the objection based on evidence code sections 1552 and 1553 and found Goldstein guilty, fining her $436. Goldstein shouted, I'll take this all the way to the Supreme Court, and apparently meant it. I made up that last part. But the Court of Appeal and Supreme Court both agreed that the photos and video were admissible. In our case, we were offering the Yelp reviews only to show that they existed. But in Goldstein, it went a bit further since the photos and video were offered to show Goldstein had run the red light. Okay, I admit it, this episode was more about evidence than anti-slap law, but I hope you found the information relevant to your practice. 
As you could probably tell, I'm really happy to have been vindicated, and the fact that the Court of Appeal felt the issues were so important that it ignored that there was a settlement and issued a published opinion is just icing on the cake. Hold on for the after show and I'll tell you about the settlement. Thank you so much for listening. Until next week, have a great week and try not to slap anyone. Remember, since we lost on the breach of lease claims, the trial court awarded attorney fees to Painter. I was no longer involved at that point, but I think I could have successfully argued that it was a push, to use a gambling term, since we prevailed on Painter's cross-complaint by way of his dismissal in the face of our trial brief, but it is what it is. As you probably know, when a judgment is only for attorney fees and costs, collection is stayed pending appeal without having to post an appeal bond. So the entire time the appeal was pending, Esquire was safe from collection efforts. When it was clear at oral argument that she would prevail, Esquire used that momentum to broker a settlement, and she immediately filed a notice of settlement with the Court of Appeal. When the Court of Appeal then issued the opinion anyway, reversing the judgment on all causes of action, I was actually disappointed for Esquire. I wasn't privy to the settlement, but I imagined that she'd probably waived her claims against Painter as part of the settlement. Well, it turned out parties had not finalized the settlement, so as soon as the opinion was published, Esquire filed a notice of withdrawal of settlement and is now free to proceed against Painter. Now, this judge, Judge Simons, was unlike anything I've previously encountered. She was palpably biased against my client and by association me. Uh, I'm considering a segment called the California Slap Law Players, where we'll reenact some of the exchanges during trial. One of our claims was for breach of the covenant of quiet enjoyment, and as part of that claim, we wanted to compare and contrast the way the previous landlord had interacted with Esquire as compared to Painter. For example, my client had a piece of equipment that had never been a problem with the prior landlord. His name was Williams. But Painter kept threatening to evict Esquire due to that piece of equipment. Let's say the equipment was a copy machine. So I have Williams on the stand now at trial, and I ask, Mr. Williams, were you aware that Esquire used a copy machine in her business? And Judge Simons cuts in and says, irrelevant. The relationship between Mr. Williams and Miss Esquire is irrelevant. The only thing that is relevant is the relationship between Mr. Painter and Miss Esquire. Well, that kind of cut me off of the knee, so I shut up and I sit down. So now it's time for cross-examination of Mr. Williams by defense counsel. So defense counsel stands up and says, Mr. Williams, how was Miss Esquire as a tenant? Well, the judge had just stated that she would not permit testimony about the relationship between Williams and Esquire. So I said, objection, irrelevant. Judge Simons overrules me. Mr. Williams then testifies, she was difficult to work with. Judge Simons then says, jurors, were you able to hear that? Mr. Williams, could you say that again? She was difficult to work with. I'm still not sure they can hear you, sir. Could you please lean into that mic and say that again? She was difficult to work with. You jurors in the back, could you hear that he said Miss Esquire was difficult to work with? Now, I don't have the transcript in front of me, but I'm 90% sure she managed to have Mr. Williams testify on that point at least four times. Ah, good times. Thanks for listening, and I'll talk with you soon.